morning's program is going to focus on those factors that drive the economy in the foreseeable future with specific emphasis on the states in the Fourth Circuit. Our panel of experts are also going to provide some useful suggestions as to how perhaps you can have some necessary course corrections in order to accommodate that market, any marketing strategy you may want to develop, and maybe some ideas as to how you should structure your practice to meet those economic challenges. Now, we're going to begin this morning with an overview of the domestic economy with specific emphasis on the Fourth Circuit cases, excuse me, Fourth Circuit uh, states. hope there's no Fourth Circuit cases talked about. Uh, no one is more capable of providing an economic overview of, of, of the domestic economic policy than our first speaker. Uh, we're very pleased today to have Dr. Jeffrey M. Lacker. Uh, Dr. Lacker is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, uh, and as you probably know, his observations and his economic forecasts are very, very widely covered by journalists and other economic uh, uh, bloggers, etc., around the country. Uh, Dr. Lacker has a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Wisconsin, and he's going to focus on an economic forecast, talk about some of the key factors you should watch in trying to forecast the market over the next few years. Now, after you have the benefit of the economic forecast and outlook, uh, we're going to turn to Dr. James V. Cook, professor of economics and former president of Old Dominion University. And Dr. Cook, who's done a lot of research and writing in this area, is going to give you some insight as to what effect he believes this economic outlook will have on consumers, clients, and litigation in the Fourth Circuit. Hopefully, it will assist practitioners in evaluating the legal market and developing an appropriate strategy. Dr. Cook has his PhD in economics from Northwestern University. Finally, we're going to take the information you've heard from Dr. Lacker and Dr. Cook and talk about how it affects your law practice. This final segment will touch on the effect of the economy on the structure and focus of law practices. We're pleased to have Bruce McEwen, president of Adam Smith Esquire LLC, a New York-based management consultancy to law firms and the legal industry. He's going to provide you some tips as to how to structure your law practice to effectively address the projected demand for legal services. He is also, by the way, the co-author of a recently published book entitled Growth is Dead, Now What? Law Firms on the Brink. He's a graduate of Princeton University and has his law degree from Stanford. At the end of the program, if time permits, we're going to open it up for some questions. But before I turn the podium over to Dr. Lacker, uh, I want to express my appreciation to my colleague, uh, Judge Ray Jackson from Norfolk, and to David C. Landon of Hunt and Williams for their tremendous contribution in helping us put together this program this morning. I'll now turn it over to Dr. Jeffrey M. Lacker, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Dr. Lacker. Thank you very much, Judge, uh, for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to join you uh, this morning in this fine setting uh, in Western Virginia. My assignment uh, is to provide you with an overview of the outlook for the U.S. 
economy uh, to serve as backdrop uh, for uh, my co-panelist discussion of the outlook for the market for legal services. And the predominant narrative uh, regarding the United States economy uh, is that the expansion we've been in uh, since the Great Recession of 2008 and early 2009 uh, has been disappointing. Uh, my understanding uh, is that uh, the lawyering business has been a bit disappointing of late as well. And I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide which is more disappointing. But for my part, I'll say that I, I see uh, much to take satisfaction from uh, in uh, recent economic developments. And so I don't think an entirely gloomy perspective about the U.S. economy is warranted. And I'll try and give you, uh, as we go forward, a, a, a balanced and, and well-grounded view. Um, and I, I, hope, uh, I hope that that's the case for your sector as well. Before I begin, I should emphasize that the views I'm going to express are, are my own and uh, should not be attributed to anyone else in the Federal Reserve System. So uh, let's begin with some good news um, about the economic situation, and that is that inflation is well contained. Over the last 12 months, our most reliable measure of prices, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, has risen only 1.0 percent, flat 1 percent. That's on the low side of our recent experience. Uh, some uh, observers and some policymakers even have expressed concern that the inflation outlook might warrant a shift to a more accommodative monetary policy. But inflation has been fluctuating around a 2 percent trend uh, for two decades now. And just, just 21 months ago, 22 months ago, it was 2.9 percent. There appears to be fairly widespread confidence, I believe, that the Federal Reserve is going to keep inflation low and stable consistent with our announced inflation goal of 2%. Indeed, most forecasters uh, view the current readers, readings on inflation as a temporary phenomenon, a uh, transitory phenomenon, and, expect, and they expect inflation to run at or a little below 2% over the next two years. We get information from household surveys and financial market uh, measures also that, that, that gauge uh, where people expect inflation uh, to go, and those are, are consistent with inflation remaining near its, its, its longer-term average of 2 percent. So my own view is that uh, the transitory factors depressing inflation are likely to ebb, and we're going to see inflation edge back towards the Federal Open Market Committee's target of 2 percent by next year. In contrast to inflation, uh, which over time is determined by central bank actions, Real economic growth and labor market uh, conditions are affected by a wide range of factors that are outside a central bank's control. It's, and it's real economic conditions that are now viewed by many as so disappointing. To get a handle on that disappointment, uh, the magnitude of it, um, let's look back at the beginning of the millennium and recall that pervasive sense of optimism that we seem to have lost a little bit of. Much of that optimism was based on experience. Over the previous half century, that is from 1950 to 2000, we enjoyed a, a period of remarkable economic performance. Real gross domestic product, that's our, our most comprehensive measure of economic activity and, and, and commensurately incomes in our economy. Real gross domestic product grew at a 3.5% annual rate from 1950 to 2000. Since 2000, growth has fallen short of that long-run average. We had a very severe recession in 2008 and the first half of 2009, our worst since the 1930s. And growth has only averaged 2.0 percent 
since the end of 2009, well below that longer-run average. And looking ahead, the key question for the economy is whether growth is, is going to remain relatively low. Many forecasters expect growth to pick up to over 3% next year. I've become increasingly persuaded, however, that low growth rates are likely to persist for several years. To see the logic behind that expectation, it's helpful to break down GDP growth into two components. One is the growth in employment, and the other is the growth in labor productivity measured by GDP per worker. So you can think of GDP growth as determined by the growth in the number of workers and the growth in GDP per worker. And GDP per worker is labor productivity, how much output uh, in goods and services, on average, uh, the typical worker can, can uh, account for. Labor productivity increased at an average rate of 1.8% per year from 1950 to 2000, that period of great growth. In this expansion, since late 2009, uh, labor productivity at first, at first increased very rapidly in the last half of 2009. That's typical coming out of a deep recession. There's also sort of a corresponding slide on the way in. But since then, productivity growth has only uh, been 0.9%, nine-tenths of a percent at an annual rate, versus 1.8% in the second half of the last century. Thus, slower productivity growth is responsible for a significant portion of the growth slowdown in this uh, expansion relative to the 20th century. Now, productivity growth is a consequence of a wide variety of disparate factors. The, they all end up sort of affecting working by, through their effect on the deployment of innovations. Um, and the factors that, that affect uh, innovation range from, I mean, they're sort of the obvious things, research and development, business capital expenditures, because new capital embodies new, new techniques, regulatory and tax policies that affect the incentive to adopt new innovations, expand plant and equipment, uh, labor force skills, the ability of our workforce to work with new technologies and, and take on innovative uh, techniques, and then public infrastructure investment that underlies the productivity of, of individual efforts. Now, notice, just for future reference, monetary policy is not on that list. So after counting for productivity growth, the rest of the reduction in, in GDP growth has been due to slower growth in employment. And that's where you hear a lot of conversation about the disappointing economy. Employment grew at an average annual rate of 1.7% from 1950 to 2000. Employment fell dramatically in a recession, and in the immediate aftermath, it kept, kept falling a little bit as well. And late, towards the end of 2009, it started expanding and has grown since the end of 2009 at a 1.1% annual rate. So from 1.7% in the last second half of the last century down to 1.1% annual growth in employment. Now, it, it shouldn't be surprising to see relatively slow growth in employment now because the number of people uh, that are in the normal working age range is itself growing slowly. For example, the civilian population that's age 16 to 64, uh, typical prime working age, has only grown at four-tenths of a percent at an annual rate, grew, grew more rapidly in the last century. Part of the, the part of the population in the United States that's growing most rapidly is the, the part that's over 65. And so what we're seeing is the passage of baby boomers out of the ages, age ranges in which they typically are working into age ranges in which people typically 
don't work as much, the retirement, and it's not that they don't work at all over age 65, um, but uh, participation, the fraction that are in the labor force, goes down dramatically uh, after age 55 or 60. In addition to the slowing of the population growth, we're also seeing a decline in the fraction of the population that's in the workforce. Um, so this is, this is true even when you adjust for age uh, and the, the age composition effect I, I talked about. The most dramatic decline has been among young people uh, whose labor force participation rate fell from 59% in December of 2007 to less than 55% now, fairly dramatic drop. But participation has, has fallen for other age groups as well. 25 to 54 uh, age group has fallen from 80, over 83, 83.1 to 81.3 right now. Now, part of the decline in participation could be just be workers discouraged. So when I say participation, I mean either that they're working or they're looking for work. So they're either unemployed or they're employed. Uh, if they're not looking for work, they're not counted as unemployed, and they're counted as out of the labor force. And people can get discouraged if the job market conditions aren't, aren't, aren't very positive, and they can withdraw from the labor force, just stop looking for work. So part of the decline in participation rates could be a consequence of slower growth. But another part of the decline could be due to some structural factors, things that don't really have to do with demand for, for, employ, uh, for workers. For example, the number of potential workers receiving disability payments has risen almost 2% over the last year. And it's been on a steady rise uh, since the change, changes in recent decades uh, in um, uh, the configuration of, of how you qualify for and, and get uh, disability payments. And disability tends to be very sticky. When you, uh, when you get on disability, the, the disincentive um, to, to go back to work. The, the incentive to go back to work is very, very low uh, because you, you lose a tremendous amount in terms of benefits. So that's, that seems to be impeding labor force participation. And young people, um, are. it seems as if the fall in participation, labor force participation among the young is, is related to a, a fairly significant increase in school enrollment. Um, now that could be two things. It could be that since they can't find a job, it's a good time to go to school. But on the other hand, we've seen this secular increase in uh, the, the wage gap between uh, more educated and less educated workers. And so they might be responding to market signals and deciding that it's uh, worth getting more education. Um, and, and that would be a good thing. But that would be a structural thing unrelated to demand. So now it's really hard to get quantitative evidence to parse these two things out. Uh, it's, it's sort of in, un, inconclusive. There's studies that that uh, attribute a lot to the sluggish demand and discouragement and some that attribute less. My sense is that uh, the slowing employment growth is largely structural factors. Um, I think it's been uh, quite a while since the recession um, and, and uh, the recession's effect are li have likely dissipated by now, uh, labor force participation. So to summarize, slow growth in real GDP seems related to both lower productivity growth and lower employment uh, growth. Um, uh, so um, this view, um, this 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 is what underlies my sense that that lower rates of growth in GDP, around two percent, are likely uh, to be um, likely to continue. Um, I think some combination of low productivity growth and slow employment growth um, is is going to lead GDP to stay uh, continue to grow around two percent. Now this view contrasts with the view of a number of 
forecasters. Um, and so it's a bit of an outlier. I'll, I'll grant that. Um, they, a lot of forecasters are, are expecting uh, real GDP growth um, to pick up, to accelerate significantly in the next year or two. Um, they see growth as temporarily restrained now by some headwinds. Now, a few years ago, I subscribed to this view as well, um, up until a couple of quarters ago. And I, I thought that um, growth would accelerate year after year. Uh, I, I kept forecasting that growth would, would pick up to over 3% in a quarter or two. Um, but year after year, our forecasts of acceleration were proven wrong and growth came in near 2%. Eventually, I started feeling an affinity for Charlie Brown, trying time after time to kick a football that Lucy kindly offers to hold for him, only to yank away at the last minute. So after landing on my back a few times in the forecasting business, I, I have re-examined that basic premise that growth would accelerate. And I've come to appreciate these structural factors that I think are, are persistently limiting growth right now. So even though growth has averaged 2% since the end of 2009, um, our experience has been somewhat choppy. Um, and there have been fluctuations above and below 2%. We just learned, for example, that real GDP growth was 1.8% in the first quarter. Now, one exception to the choppiness has been housing, uh, which has been on a solid growth path um, since uh, the beginning of last year. Housing starts have more than doubled uh, since um, the low point in 2009, and now they've risen about 30% over the last tw 12 months. Home prices are also on the upswing, rising about 12% over the last 12 months. Now, I should caution that home building is still far below uh, the levels we saw just before the recession. Uh, which were, I think, artificially high. But they're even below the levels that were typical of uh, a more normal, healthy market in the 1990s. Uh, in addition, I'd point out that residential investment is still less than 3% of GDP. So even if it grows at sort of outsized rates, its contribution on overall economic activity is going to be smaller uh, than it otherwise would be. Having said that, though, how the improvement in the housing market seems to have had an important effect uh, bolstering the confidence of uh, households in the value of what, uh, for most households, is their most important asset, their home. Now, rising confidence would be a good thing for consumer spending. Uh, that accounts for more than 70 percent of GDP. Over the last 12 months, real consumer spending has risen by 1.8 percent, which is in line with GDP growth and the growth in real personal income that's occurred over that period. Um, there were these sizable increases in federal taxes that took effect in January. I took a sizable bite out of take-home pay. Um, so after tax income hasn't risen as much, only 1.1% since last year this time. But despite this, consumer spending's held up reasonably well. Uh, the more persistent restraint on consumer spending, I think, in this expansion has been the after effects of the income and wealth shocks that hit Americans during the Great Recession. I think memories of these uh, losses have undoubtedly made individuals more cautious about spending commitments, uh, more committed to rebuilding their balance sheets, um, more committed to, to keeping a, a liquid um, buffer stock of savings on hand. And I, these fundamentals, I think, make it hard for me to be bullish about a pickup in consumer spending growth. And most of the forecasters that are expecting growth to accelerate to over 3% are, are, are looking for consumers to get um, significantly more optimistic over the next year or two. Business capital spending, on the other hand, is likely to make a solid contribution to growth over the next few years. Now, investments fell very sharply in the recessions, typical for uh, firms to cut back on CapEx, 
Um, but new technologies keep coming along. They keep being developed, and they keep being deployed. Um, and there are ample motives to uh, implement uh, new technologies, um, even in the absence of rapid growth in overall demand. So business fixed investment rose 5.5% last year, and most forecasters are expecting solid growth going forward, and I, I concur with that, that outlook. So the private sector seems to be in good shape, and if I could stop here, my growth forecast would be significantly um, higher than 2%, but for completeness, I need to mention the fact that the federal fiscal outlook is an utter mess. Last year, the federal deficit exceeded $1 trillion, almost 7% of GDP. That's an astounding number by historical standards. Projections by, by historical peacetime standards at least, projections by the Congressional Budget Office show the deficit declining for several years and then increasing without bound as a fract relative to GDP. Um, and so imagine your deficit uh, in your household's account is growing relative to your income. That's just simply a, a, an unsustainable upward trajectory that it would, it would provide. Um, so it's well known that the current course is unsustainable um, and is not going to come true. So some combination of higher taxes and less spending uh, growth is going to be inevitable, but it's not clear what adjustments um, can, are, are going to be made. And the, the range of potential adjustments affects just about everybody in the economy, if you look at spending and tax programs. Um, so there's a pervasive uncertainty associated with the lack of resolution of this fiscal uh, mess, and it's undoubtedly, I believe, um, affected household and business decisions. And I think it's unlikely we're going to see soon a grand bargain that's going to put the federal budget on a sustainable long-run path. Um, so um, it, it looks to be a, a challenge for growth um, going forward. Another challenge stems from the need for businesses to adapt to the large volume of new regulations that have been added in recent years. This isn't the place for me to argue the merits of any particular piece of legislation, but I'd simply note that even if the social benefits of new regs are, are significantly positive, businesses may still face significant compliance costs uh, that, turn, that in turn affect their hiring and investment decisions. And in addition, I'd note that many key decisions regarding implementation of those regulations have yet to be made or, or fully litigated, uh, I should add. And the magnitude of uncertainty facing firms is thus uh, quite large um, and likely to be quite elevated relative to the past. So all told, I think the fiscal sector uh, is clearly a net impediment to growth right now. So forecasting is nothing if not a humbling endeavor. Uh, but rather than say caveat emptor, I think that's a legal term, uh, I'll simply note that um, there is a lengthy list of reasons why my forecast could be wrong. Uh, productivity growth forecasting is notoriously difficult. Um, as the 90s demonstrated, uh, we had a period of slow productivity growth from mid-70s to mid-90s, and then a takeoff that wasn't widely anticipated. On the positive side also, growth in our major trading partners could prove uh, to uh, could improve more rapidly than people expect, and that would boost export demands and incomes. Um, so I can't dismiss the, dismiss the possibility that growth could be higher than we thought. It's not clear, though, that the countries in the Eurozone have solved their fiscal and competitive challenges, though. So I think there's a chance that stagnant conditions there uh, could last longer uh, than, than expected and uh, could prove more persistent and that their growth could languish this year and next. Moreover, several emerging market economies are facing pretty significant challenges right now, and, and if their adjustments prove more formidable than 
expected. Their growth could suffer as well. Closer to home, the provisions of the uh, Affordable Care Act, when they're implemented later this year, could prove, prove highly consequential for small business, small and medium-sized business hiring decisions. And uh, whatever the benefits that that act may bring, uh, it could conceivably slow down growth as the economy adjusts to a new configuration of regulations around hiring. So all told, I, you, you can't uh, dismiss the, the chance that um, my moderate growth um, outlook might be over-optimistic as well. But still, all told, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that growth is going to come in two or two and a quarter percent over the next couple of years. So I should add one important qualification to my, my, my portrayal of the economic outlook. At the, at the longer horizon, we're talking over the net, next several decades, I am fundamentally quite optimistic about the U.S. economy. The resilience inherent in our institutional framework around economic activity, and here I'd point particularly to the rule of law, uh, the strength of our great research institutions, the intrinsic capabilities and flexibility of our workforce, I think all augur well for our capacity uh, to develop and apply the innovations that drive increases in standard of living um, over time. So at this point in the discussion, you may have mentioned I haven't said much about monetary policy, uh, so I'll remedy that now before I close. Uh, Federal Reserve policy is exceptionally accommodative uh, right now. Short-term interest rates are near zero. Our balance sheet is four times the size it was before the financial market uh, turmoil uh, in 2007 and 2008. Uh, and our balance sheet, of course, means our liabilities, which uh, are all monetary, that is to say the money we supply in the economy. Moreover, the balance sheet continues to expand. This is consistent with Chairman Bernanke's announcement last week that the Federal Open Market Committee anticipates reducing the pace of asset purchases later this year and ending purchases around mid-year 2014, provided that incoming data are broadly consistent with the, the uh, committee's forecast. This means that over the course of the next 12 months, the committee is, will be reducing only the pace at which it is adding further accommodation. Let me emphasize, reducing the asset purchases is reducing the pace at which we were adding, are adding further accommodation. In other words, the Federal Reserve is not only leaving the punch bowl in place, we're continuing to spike the punch though likely at a decreasing rate over the next year. A highly stimulative policy, I think, was quite appropriate in, um, as a response to the severe recession of 2008 and 2009, in my view. Growth has resumed, however, and it looks as though it's limited in part by structural factors that monetary policy is incapable of offsetting. In this situation, benefit-cost trade-offs for further monetary stimulus do not look promising. I seriously doubt that additional monetary stimulus is capable of providing much impetus to real growth right now, but further stimulus does increase the size of our balance sheet and correspondingly increases the risks associated with the exit process when it becomes time for us to withdraw stimulus. And that's why I have not supported the current asset purchase program. I did, however, think it wise of the chairman, uh, Chairman Bernanke, to clarify the committee's expectations last week regarding how the pace of asset purchases is likely to evolve. Bond and stock markets fell sharply in response, but that should not be too surprising. The chairman's statement forced financial market participants to reevaluate the likely total amount of securities the Fed would buy under this open-ended purchase plan. In other words, how much liquor would ultimately be poured into the punch bowl. 
Market participants also had to reconsider the estimate of when the Federal Reserve would begin to remove the punch bowl by raising interest rates. And these reassessments appear to have warranted price changes across a, an array of financial assets. As participants in the market gain additional insights from the words of Federal Reserve officials or by policy actions in coming quarters, further asset price volatility seems likely. This type of volatility is a normal part of the process of incorporating new information into financial asset prices, and it shouldn't interfere with the moderate growth scenario that I've presented today. I would emphasize that keeping inflation low and stable is within the capability of any modern central bank, and on that score, the recent behavior of inflation has been heartening. Inflation is likely to remain well-contained, and that is the single most important contribution a central bank can make uh, to economic growth. I thank you for your attention.